control. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio, entering our second decade as the number one Irish tech podcast with the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. We're on air with RTE and online via your favourite podcasting app, be that Apple Podcasts or Spotify or TuneIn. Uh, we also keep you up to date daily on all things tech with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Joining me as always is our editor-in-chief, Niall Kitson. Uh, Niall, a very interesting question to open up the show how much would you want cash to reveal what's in your bank account yeah this is a really interesting question and this comes from a study that was conducted by a think tank in america called the technology policy institute and basically what they did was they asked a whole bunch of people in different countries around the world um how much would you charge to have someone find out just a little piece of information about you, just a little bit. You know, like the text message you sent yesterday or your bank balance at a certain date. All these sort of little bits of information. Um, how much would you charge for find, having someone find out your bank balance, Dusty? Ah, oh, to find Just that one number. W- that one number. I would not like anybody to know what's uh, in my bank. Okay, but let's let's assume that <laughs> you were once... as in no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't tell anybody. Okay. I, w- I wouldn't sell it. It would be if you want to call it priceless. Okay, that's very interesting. Okay, now I do have to. Obviously, you do have to do that information if you're applying for a mortgage or you're doing this. So there's certain things that you have to do, or you're filling out a tax form, or whatever it happens to be. Um, but on a natural course of things, um, now I'm a very private kind of a person because so generally when companies ask me to supply information, I tend not to supply what everybody else does. It's like send hmm. photo ID. Everybody sends their passport. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Or you know, if you've, I go, there's my social services card. That'll do you. <laughs> yeah. Or if you've ever seen Parks and Recreation, the, the wonderful character Ron Swanson, who mm. won a steak eating competition mm. in his local uh, his local um, restaurant of choice. And he's put up on a wall of fame and underneath, you know, where it would normally have, you know, your name and that kind of thing. It just says, man. <laughs> So listen, if I'm private about my yeah. information, how much would you accept to tell somebody what's your bank balance today? Well, I can tell you what the global average was. Um, the, the, no, 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 my, no. I'm asking you. Asking me? Oh, yes. I'm a, I'm a stuckist as well. Like you're not get you're, you know, that's cold dead hands territory for me. But <laughs> okay, you know, we live in a different world. <laughs> okay, so so other people, other people in the world then who are willing to reveal that information, how much will they accept? Yeah. Well, apparently at one end of the scale uh, were German cousins in the EU and they said that uh, they would charge $8.44 to have somebody, to have a company learn what was in their bank account on a certain date. Mm-hmm. $8.44. Now, right? tell me, what, what, how did this whole question come about? Who wants to know what's the, what's the value of, of, of imparting this information? Well, this is all market research. This is, you know, this is your digital fingerprint writ writ large. If you were to, you know, shop yourself around and assemble information that you want to sort Mm. of sell on as the package of, you know, Dusty Official to a marketer, 
uh, you might be able to make a, a reasonable amount of money out of it, uh, out of, you know, data that mm. is not going to be freely available, but that you want control of. So, yeah, $8.44. That's what our, our German folks would reckon their bank balance is worth. In America, they, they say the average was $3.50. So it shows the value they... Okay, here's one. Here's another one. To read your text messages. Mm-hmm. What do you think the global average would be? Knowing knowing that, you know, $8.44 high end for finding out your bank balance, three fifty the low end. So I, let's I, frame I, it. I can't put a number on that because I, I would never sell that information. So, um, but I will, for the sake of the discussion, say two euro. No, no, you'd do a bit better than that now. You would do a bit better in a hypothetical situation around $6 for a company to read your text messages. And it'll cost you 10 times that if you want to read the text messages with me and my mistress. <laughs> that is a deal, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you see? You see? <laughs> I knew you'd get your attention on that one. All right. Well, uh, that, that's, that's interesting. Um, listen, tell me, uh, another interesting story that is out today is uh, uh, quite a while ago, there was a story of a person driving, uh, or sorry, rather, they were not driving uh, one of these cars. It was one of the autopilot cars. Uh, and this has come to light again. Tell me, what's the latest on this? Yeah, this is a judgment that was released uh, Tuesday by the NTSB uh, in the States. Uh, they were looking at a fatal road accident in the state of California, where what happened was that uh, a poor gentleman by the name of Walter Huang, uh, who was an Apple employee, was driving his uh, Tesla, uh, which, um, uh, depending on who you ask, he basically was an unalert driver. And the car ended up crashing into a, a crash barrier and he unfortunately lost his life. And the ruling came out this week as to what exactly happened. And there was a few interesting places where the, the blame was pointed, right? So, and there there's uh, two very interesting reasons why this crash happened, right? So we'll, we'll go to sort of the least interesting one because what, what happened was that his car drifted across lanes and basically went from, you know, the... A left-hand lane or a right-hand lane where he was meant to be, uh, the car drifted into the middle of the lanes and ended up crashing straight into a, a median crash barrier. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, unfortunately, um, there there is basically um, uh, what do they call them? It's sort of a, a crash protector, an attenuator is what they call it, and it's basically sort of a, a thing in front of the. Um, the um, barrier that sort of lessens the impact. So if you drive into it, it's not you know yeah. you, you would you you would improve your chances of, of surviving staying alive, basically. Yeah, yeah surviving. Uh, however, uh, so that was one problem in that the attenuator was not properly serviced, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't working properly. Um, part two, uh, as you can imagine, uh, the driver was unalert. He was not paying attention to what was going on in the road uh, at the time. He was playing a mobile game on. His iPhone. Uh, guess what? He happened to be an Apple employee uh, who was on a company issued phone, and there was a little bit of an interesting piece of fallout straight after straight after that. Um, and of course, the the third one being that he was driving a Tesla and relying on the autopilot, but there was a problem with the autopilot, and this was due to the uh, particular system that the autopilot was using. Uh, it, the autopilot on the model Tesla that he was driving assumed that you were driving between two, you know two road markers, two lines in the road. And that was partly what it used to, uh, to to gauge your location. However, one of the lines on the road was worn away and couldn't be detected. 
So uh, basically the car drifted to match the line that it had view of. But unfortunately... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can see how that would happen. It was a, a fine system uh, working in an, Im- an imperfect world and there was no redundancy there. And I think that's the problem is that many things are fine systems in an imperfect world. If you look at your smart speakers and the amount of training you have to do them to do the most basic thing... Yeah, uh, you yeah. Know. So and that's just, just a smart speaker. So, you know, you mm. can imagine, you, know, you might have autopilot in a car, but this in no way sort of uh, gives you sort of car blash to sort of tune out to what's going well, on. Well, you see, that's the whole point. The whole point of having an autopilot car is that you can tune out and do other things and have a snooze. But anyway, that's well, a, that's well, a discussion in, for another day. Uh, maybe I in get, 10 years you can do it. <laughs> Very quickly, I want to get our third and last story uh, because we literally have 30 seconds on this. Um, okay. Apple, because you know have the rules and regulations and you can't do this and you can't do that and da-da-da-da, they've come out with the most ridiculous thing in movies. Tell us. Yeah, if you're, if you're a bad guy in a movie, you're not allowed to use an iPhone. This is a directive from Apple. <laughs> this is this is brand placement gone nutty. Oh my head is in my hands over laughter on that one. All right, <laughs> thanks for keeping us up to date on the news this week. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's TechCentral.ie. You might not think it, but there is an awful lot that the field of medicine can learn from engineering. Professor Leisha McNamara is a professor of biomedical engineering at NUI Galway, and her job is to look at ways the principles of material science can be used to treat bone conditions such as osteoporosis. She caught up with Niall Kitson over the phone to talk about her work and what prompted her to make the move from engineering to medical science. At least your own background uh, isn't necessarily in, in medicine, uh, but um, biomedical engineering. So if you can give us an introduction to you know, why that field interested you and, and your particular route to get into it. Yeah, so I studied mechanical engineering at university here in Galway um, a good few years ago. And while I was studying, uh, some changes happened in in the west of Ireland where there was a medical device sector established. And in response to that, uh, the university uh, started to develop biomedical engineering. So what what is biomedical engineering? It's a, a subject that's at the interface between engineering and biology. And the easiest way to think about it is that biomedical engineers are problem solvers for the human body. And they solve those problems mainly through uh, making medical devices, things like hip implants, uh, stents, heart valves, uh, these types of uh, interventional devices that uh, can address uh, diseases and uh, pathologies in the human body. So the need for an engineer behind designing these is that, uh, you know, you need to think about the the mechanics of the environment within the human body. Uh, if you're going to put um, a hip implant into someone's hip and it's going to be expected to last for 30 or 40 years, then you really need an engineer to, uh, first of all, understand that environment. What are the sorts of forces in there? How many loads per day? Uh, what sort of failure mechanisms could occur, like fatigue or wear? and uh, what sort of materials then and uh, the properties of those materials that would be appropriate for that environment. So uh, back to the question, how did I get into it? Well, uh, an opportunity arose when I was studying mechanical engineering to pick some subjects that were uh, biomedically focused. 
And uh, this was pretty uh, a great opportunity for me because when I had been considering my options at university, I uh, had thought about medicine and physiotherapy, uh, but I really didn't see myself as uh, someone who'd be hands-on dealing with patients in a clinical setting. But I did. I was drawn to healthcare in general. But actually, I also really loved maths and physics and then problem solving and chose mechanical engineering, really, because I felt I was more of a, of a problem solving engineering type, really, than a, a person that should be in a clinical environment. So it was really opportune for me when uh, this, this this degree was launched and I was able to, in the final two years of my degree, specialize in, in biomedical engineering. And what that involved was that uh, we were able to take, you know, subjects like medical students would take, like anatomy and pathology and physiology, but also kind of these uh, specialist subjects, which would be around how to design medical devices, what are biomaterials, what materials are, are appropriate in the body. And I guess that's really my journey into it. And, and uh, I went from there then on to, to uh, pursuing biomedical engineering uh, through a PhD at Trinity College. That view of uh, sort of the the body as sort of a, a collection of mechanical systems, and in particular yeah. the, the skeleton as a, a sort of yeah. um, a, a structural um, uh, entity, as opposed to you yeah. know, something that is is purely um, physical, for want of a, a, a clumsy term on it. How big a leap was that for you, or for you know academics in general, to start treating the skeleton as you know something? Uh, a sort of an engineering product as opposed to a a medical problem. Yeah, I guess for me it was extremely stimulating. You know, uh, I hadn't really focused on biology or anything before that and and the idea that uh, we can break down the human body and think about, uh, you know, the the mechanics of how it works, you know, that to me really opened up uh, huge possibilities for me in terms of where I could see myself going. in terms of the transition of of engineers in general into the biomedical space, really, you know, materials within the human body are are very complex materials. And um, uh, unlike engineering materials, you know, they're adaptive and uh, uh, they're extremely well designed. For example, I mean, I'll use bone as as again, but bone is this very lightweight but extremely strong material. So the um, trying to recreate a similar material uh, using you know traditional synthetic approaches is is not really feasible because there's such a complex structure in there that's almost like a composite material uh, but it has cells in there so it's living and it can change and it can adapt so uh, I guess to me that was really inspiring that uh, nature is so fundamentally good at, at making materials that enable us to do day-to-day things and it sets huge challenges for engineers to try and uh, maybe uh, replace it and recreate it when when it's uh, deficient due to disease or, or people break bones or whatever, you know. I suppose it is that element of unpredictability and the variation from person to person because, of course, not everybody's skeleton is the same. Not, not all bones are, are made equal. So what sort of variations do you find, uh, you know, out in the wild, say, when it comes to maybe athletes or, or astronauts compared to sort of regular people? Yeah, I mean, this, again, comes back to the fact that the tissue is adaptive, right? So depending on how we use our bone, it changes uh, the composition and structure of the bone, okay? So uh, if you take your astronaut, the astronaut, uh, when they go up to the International Space Station, they're in a weightless environment, and everybody would be 
uh, familiar with the idea that, you know, you might start to have loss of muscles, uh, but people are less aware that actually there's a dramatic effect on the bone. So this weightless environment leads to significant uh, depletion of the bone stock. So the cells in the bone start to attack that structure. They think it's not necessary, it's not needed. And... uh, those astronauts when they return to, to Earth after six months on the International Space Station have bones as weak as women in their 60s. So uh, this is quite a dramatic and uh, uh, um, problematic effect of this adaptive nature of bone. Bone is optimised to the forces we put on it and when we don't need it, it resorbs it. Okay? And uh, the same thing would happen if you went on long-term bed rest in a hospital. So for, for some reason you were hospitalised for a long period of time, you will see that your bone mass is uh, dropping over a period of time. So um, this, I guess, is a, so if you talk about the extremes of that, so one extreme might be your astronauts, the other might be your professional tennis player. Uh, there you see that uh, they their tennis playing arm has adapted to the forces that they're repetitively, these high impact forces that are repetitively uh, put on uh, when playing the game of tennis and that the, the bone that's the tennis playing arm is not just more muscular but the bone density uh, sorry that the arm is not more muscular the bone density is uh, substantially increased there so um so, so when we talk about uh, the general population and the extremes of that um there is huge variability from person to person anyway you know uh, things like age um, sex weight activity levels all of these will dictate um, our our bone makeup and, and the strength and properties of the tissue we have there. So what sort of interventions are you looking at in your work at the moment, especially when you're dealing with bones that maybe have an underlying pathology or have, say, you know, experienced an accident uh, like, you know, a fall? So in my group, we're particularly focused on the disease of osteoporosis. And what we want to find out is whether the cells that normally measure how much physical activity we put on the bone uh, are acting properly during osteoporosis. So is there something that's um, uh, deficient about those cells? And if so, can we target that activity? So uh, currently, if if someone was to uh, be treated for osteoporosis, they'd uh, usually get a drug that uh, stops further bone loss. So osteoporosis is a disease of bone loss and leads to serious fractures uh, that render people uh, immobile and significantly impair their health. So those people are usually treated with something to prevent the further bone loss. Um, but the whole goal of my research actually is that um, that we need to think about the cells that control that bone loss, not just the cells that do it. There are cells that dig away at the bone, but there are these master cells that uh, act like uh, the body's own weighing scales effectively. And uh, we need to understand how they are functioning. And actually what we would be looking at is whether we target those particular cells instead of the ones that are called in to do the digging, if that makes sense. So um, how can we do that? You can do it through through drug treatments. That would be one approach that you would have a different target. So rather than stopping the bone digging cells, you would stop the cells that are controlling them. And uh, there's newer therapies that are out there now uh, that actually are uh, focused on these particular cells. And uh, we are actually working with the drug company to understand, okay, well, what are the implications of this particular therapy for these uh, um, 
weighing scales of the human body, these weighing cells that, uh, how are they um, interacting normally with the other cells when they're treated with this drug. And But there's other interventions that could be looked at. Uh, for a long time, uh, people have kind of tried to figure out whether things like uh, vibration plates might be effective. And you see these now in gyms. So I don't know if you've seen them yourself, but... Uh, you know, the idea of, of uh, standing on a plate that vibrates will give your cells in your, in your bone, particularly in the bone marrow, a stimulus and uh, that that may be effective. Obviously, having a good stock of bone from the outset through weight-bearing activity in the teenage years is also a really advisable thing so that when you inevitably undergo bone loss that you've got a lot uh, there already and it shouldn't be as severe. So um, I guess interventions can be both um, therapies, you know, drug therapies, or they can be, uh, you know, activity interventions. But it is important to remember that when people have already lost quite a lot of bone, it is quite difficult to build on top of that structure. It's about preventing further fragility, further uh, deterioration in the structure for the most part. And we're trying to really address that. Is there things that we can do that can trick the system back in to building new bone? So in looking at the problems that you have at the moment, um, do you, how exactly do you deal with the process of recruiting people for studies? Because very often uh, finding somebody with osteoporosis is very, very hard to predict. You can't go into the wider population and say, OK, is anyone suffering from osteoporosis? Because uh, it can actually be quite hard to find people that are suffering from the condition until something really bad happens to them. So uh, our research, um, first of all, we use uh, uh, something known as cell culture. So we can take cells from surgical waste, okay? So if somebody goes in for a hip operation, um, that tissue that's being uh, resected, the the femoral head that's being uh, replaced by a prosthetic implant, uh, can actually be uh, donated to science. And uh, so from... um, the surgical uh, uh, partner would uh, recruit the the person there. So you're right, they'll have come in, they'll already actually have either um, osteoarthritis or a fracture, and we'd be able to uh, take cells from the tissue that's uh, being replaced and study them in the lab. But actually what we're trying to do in my group is is, uh, trying to overcome the challenges of studying these. So, So when you're faced with studying these types of problems, you can work with uh, cells on a dish. So these would be bone cells sitting on a dish and we study using various approaches like we have little things we call bioreactors where we can stimulate the cells and try and recreate the the forces in the human body in a dish. Um, Animal models are an approach. And then uh, really uh, way, way down the path, you could look at human subjects. My particular uh, goal at the moment is actually to de- to provide an alternative approach, and this is something known as ex vivo models. And what we've we've actually been recently awarded funding by the European Research Council to pursue the development of uh, models of the human uh, bone that live outside of the body. So what is that? It's uh, cells on a matrix that would represent bone, so it's three dimensional. Um, and it should have the properties, but it's multiple cell types as well. And we have developed our own uh, three-dimensional bioreactors that can compress and drive fluid through these uh, 
cell scaffold constructs to recreate the human for the forces within the human body. So uh, what we're trying to do is develop much better model systems so that you can have um, maybe human cells coming from a, a donation from after surgery and then we can put them in a scaffold system in a three-dimensional environment, physically stimulate them and then we can uh, understand, okay, in this environment, now if we start to maybe give a drug or change the stimulation regime, what's the implications for the cell biology? And not just one set of cells, but cell-cell signaling, so multiple cell types interacting with each other. So that's something that we, we are going to really uh, hope to address over the next five years, is, is the provision of better model systems so that we don't need to be, um, I suppose, uh, the, the movement, moving from cell culture into animal models and then into the human, uh, there can be often um, very important therapies that don't make it or um, things that look very promising that actually uh, tend to not be so effective when, when they reach the human. So we're, we're trying to uh, fill that gap. And that was Professor Leisha McNamara from NUI Galway talking to Niall Kitson. If you'd like to hear more from Leisha and a host of other speakers from science, politics and arts, then visit Ireland's Edge, which is happening this weekend in Ballina on Saturday, the 29th of February. To find out more, visit eventbrite.ie and search for Ireland's Edge or click on the link in this week's show notes on techcentral.ie. That's our show for this week. Remember, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more from our website techcentral.ie you can listen to us each week online or of course on Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra until next time from myself Dusty and from Niall Kitson thanks so much as always for listening and have a great weekend Get Tech Radio subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com Thank you.